Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. Welcome to Initiated Survivor, where we share our stories of survival and recovery and the true nature of wisdom and grit. I'm Kelsey Harper. I'm a survivor and a clinical psychologist. Welcome to our community of radical survivors. Here, we discuss topics relevant to survivors, so please be mindful of your needs as some of these topics might be triggering. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Initiated Survivor. I'm really excited to continue to talk with everyone about all these different ways in which that we can create survivor-centered communities and how we as individuals can take action to contribute to that. I'm just coming off of a really awesome last couple of weeks of being really well connected into our community, feeling really active and engaged and seeing a lot of movement happen as a part of that within myself, but also in the greater world which has built a lot of optimism and hope and confidence, but also felt very, very powerful and mobilizing and just makes everything feel very badassery right now. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about what we can do as individuals to contribute to this community shift and change. They talked before about like this vision for the future of where we're headed as survivors to really end gender-based violence, rape, sexual assault, you know, sexual misconduct, sexual harassment in our world. What are the things that we can do? And I talked a lot about how do we disentangle ourselves from being overly committed to the carceral state, this kind of binary of we go into the medical system, system and the perpetrator goes into the criminal system and we're just supposed to move through that when we see that neither of those systems are actually resulting in systemic change. And so I wanted to also slow down and see like how do we zoom in and translate that into direct individual changes or things that we can do on our own that will really help with this. The first thing that I think about, especially as survivors, that can be incredibly powerful and helpful is that we don't stop talking about this, that we say the uncomfortable thing, even when it means that we might be putting ourselves out there and vulnerable. When we are supported and connected with our community, we can take a little bit more risks. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in just a moment. Many of my experiences over these past couple of weeks have been about seeing a lot of the outcome of saying the uncomfortable thing. I went to a screening of She Said, and this episode is going to come out long after this film has been out in the theaters, and it's possibly even already on streamers when this episode airs. It is a very powerful film. Connecting with a community of survivors when I went to that screening was incredibly powerful and felt like such a wonderful healing holding space to view this movie and to really witness and see the power of us speaking up. Quite literally, that movie is about women and survivors coming together all over the place and using different power that we have in our different offerings to the world and our different positioning and how that coming together and speaking together and saying the uncomfortable thing and taking huge, huge risks in that has resulted in 
immense, meaningful change. And I'm seeing this also as the open letter in support for Amber Heard and denouncing online harassment of survivors and these defamation lawsuits that are seeking to silence survivors came out as well and seeing that the power of having all of these organizations, all of these experts, including me, sign on this letter has really made it a voice that is impossible to ignore and was so important and so meaningful to come out and to really speak in support of what we've been discussing. I think one of the reasons that this letter came out the way it did was actually in response to the enormous public backlash to generally a lot of people really misunderstanding what interpersonal or domestic violence and gender-based violence really looks like and how that trauma expresses itself and using that misunderstanding as a method of victim blaming and then further silencing survivors. I know after everything that happened with that trial, I think no matter where people fell with their own suspicions about what went on, all survivors left that space feeling very, very scared. I felt very afraid. I felt very much like we had taken leaps and bounds backwards as survivors and created a space that was much less safe. And then, bam, all of a sudden this letter comes out, all these accounts and all these organizations and community leaders and experts in this field are supporting this and publishing this and putting that out there. We have one major resounding voice coming from hundreds of people saying this is not okay and we're stopping it now. And that leap and bound that I thought that we took backwards actually came back and put us forward again by connecting us as a community. So when we have that supportive community, we have a lot of space to exercise the power of our voice. And I definitely understand when survivors on their own have a really hard time saying what happened to them, saying what they think needs to change, what their experience was. There's a lot of risk because survivors historically have lost a lot in their process of becoming more open. But what we're seeing right now is that the movement is towards bringing more voices to light, bringing more stories to light, and having a community show up. So we can both be that individual voice that can join the mass amount of voices and create this one resounding loud noise that is not possible to ignore. You can be that individual. You can also be the individual that joins the community to support and protect survivors that come forward. What that looks like is just sometimes having those awkward conversations when someone says, you know what, I don't believe what she's saying. I think that maybe, you know, she is looking for money. She's looking for attention. She's looking for all the, all the stuff that we hear people say as to why survivors come forward, especially when survivors are coming forward with allegations against public figures. We hear a lot of that. And have the uncomfortable conversation if you can of like, you know what, actually those things that you're saying are not true. It's misinformation that is spread by misogyny, by anti-feminist organizations, by places and people who are trying to really push against survivors coming forward. People that stand to make a lot of money or hold on to a lot of power if survivors are silenced. They spread these myths that actually not only is the myth that survivors are seeking money or attention not true, but oftentimes actually women and people who come forward with survivor stories 
lose money and lose attention and lose favor in doing so. And so oftentimes survivors are taking a huge risk. So we can't assume that they're doing this for attention or money because we know that's highly unlikely to happen. But also saying, you know what, I'm actually going to pause before I make a judgment about whether or not this person's story is true. I'm not someone who is there. I don't know all of the truth. I, I'm still learning some more information about what gender-based violence looks like. Or if you feel confident doing so, I know what gender-based violence looks like, and this is this is it. This is actually how it presents, I believe, this person. Or even if I, I'm not sure, I want to hear more of what they have to say. I want to create a space where survivors can talk more about these things. So I'm not going to shut this story down. I really hope you don't either. Say the uncomfortable thing. Be the community that is uplifting the voices. The other thing, and this is the one that I think can be sometimes the most, most important, is as people, we all have different intersecting identities. And those intersecting identities can be compounding identities of systems of oppression. They can also be compounding identities of systems of privilege. And we have to be mindful of these. And not in a sense that knee-jerk reaction of if I own my privilege, then I'm just admitting that I'm flawed and that I don't know or I can't see everything accurately and that I'm wrong and I should just be quiet. But more that when we identify and own that we have privilege, we also are looking at and saying, I am very vulnerable to shaping by our environment of white supremacy, heteronormativity, patriarchy, capitalism, to potentially have ideas or beliefs about the world that are false or inaccurate, or that I may engage in actions that may actually run counter to my core values, that there's a difference between core beliefs and core values. A core belief is like, well, many survivors lie and make up allegations in order to get attention or money. And a core belief is, I want survivors to feel safe to come forward so that we can truly change and totally dismantle and eradicate gender-based violence. Where this can be important as an individual is recognizing that our privilege may filter out information that we're receiving or cause us to respond in a certain way. So, for example, one of the things that was being discussed quite often with the Amber Heard trial, with any time that there's public allegations made against public figures, any time that those are brought against especially beloved public figures, whether that's athletes, musicians, actors, all kinds of folks, we by and large see that in general, that white women, especially white survivors, are likely to doubt survivors coming forward. When I saw this, that blew my mind. I was like, how is it that survivors are doubting survivors? How is that a common thing? Because we know what this looks like. And in fact, that's actually what we were seeing so much people say. I am a survivor. I know what this looks like. I know what this experience is. And that's not it. So therefore, I doubt it or I don't believe it. And what we actually find, the research has shown, by and large, that our proximity to privilege causes us to interfere with our own ability to discern and admit that there might be some flaws in the way that we're viewing the world or that we're missing information. So I always am surprised at how much people are so certain about what happened to somebody 
that they're ready to not believe them at all that this happened when they literally don't know that person at all. But so this is similar to what we hear a lot of people talk about with regards to white feminism. And white feminism is talking about feminists who are white and are not mindful of their white privilege and reserve their feminist activism. And they're working around building more equality between the sexes strictly for white women that they're not getting engaged in matters that concern people who are not white, matters that concern people who are not straight, all of these different things. And either they ignore those issues or they actually act against those issues. And so I think for me, because I am also a white woman and a white survivor and a white feminist, that I can look at that and either get defensive and be like, well, those aren't my values. Like, you know, my values are anti-racism. My values are actually supporting LGBTQ, supporting all of these communities, embracing and uplifting them. So I can't possibly be doing something that is contributing to either totally avoiding the issue or actually increasing the issue. And that, I think, is what oftentimes happens for people is that they confuse their values with their behavior. And I know that it's possible for us to act against our own values. We do it all the time as humans. This doesn't mean that we're bad humans. It just means that we need to build more mindfulness around our behaviors. And so when we talk about white feminism, I see that for myself as a potential vulnerability factor in the sense that there's a sensitivity that I need to have to look at my automatic reactions and say that, you know, I've been shaped and indoctrinated into white supremacy and capitalism and patriarchy and all of these things. And it's very possible that my view of things is going to be skewed by that lens. So this doesn't necessarily mean that I just immediately assume, therefore, that I'm wrong, it just means that I pause and I, I assess and I ask questions. And I'm open when somebody tells me that I'm wrong, as hard as that is, especially around issues like this, where it creates a lot of fear. And this is what we see in the research with white female survivors who doubt other survivors, is that the proximity of privilege feels safe. Because I'm white and I'm close to the privilege of white men, that feels safer than being close to identifying with other survivors. And so what I do is then to not identify with other survivors. They're not like me. I am different than them. And I actually am safer by agreeing with this dominant culture of white supremacy of white men. So that results in white female survivors doubting other survivors, in part because there is this fear that if you were to believe survivors, you lose support of the dominant culture. And if we lose support of the dominant culture, then we're not going to be able to make change or we're not going to be protected and safe. The other thing that actually came up that's really important, that's interesting, is this just world myth. Just as in like there's justice in this world and that the world is ultimately a good and just and fair place and that all of these violent traumatic things that happen are anomalies. And if they're anomalies, then it means that any time that this kind of assault happens to somebody, we have to look at that anomaly and rule out that somebody did something or missed something that they should have otherwise seen. We see that when we have this just world myth 
that is attached to things like white supremacy and capitalism, hyper-individualism, patriarchy. The world is a just fair place. We don't need to change it. We also see then that all of these episodes of violence are seen as anomalies and therefore not something that we need to engage in or fight back, right? And oftentimes because we experience cognitive dissonance and cognitive dissonance is that space of I cannot tolerate or I'm uncomfortable with information that is different than the belief that I hold. And so instead, I'm going to only look for information that supports the belief that I already hold, or I'm going to dismiss information that counters the belief that I hold. And so then we see people doubting other survivors. I can't believe other survivors because if I do, that's going to cause me to have to really reshape this belief that the world is a just fair place. I actually think that many survivors have gone through that paradigm shift if they held it before. I know I did and I understand that now more as my own experience of whiteness in the white world of believing that the world is a fair, just, safe place. It's the same idea that like if I work hard enough, I should get what I want or what I deserve or what I aim to get. These are myths of, of privilege and dominant culture because it kind of keeps us acting in alignment with that culture, but it also then washes out all of the people who are saying like, actually the way culture is right now interferes with my ability to do those things. The system is set up to, against me. I'm not able to work hard and achieve the things that I want because the system is stacked against me. For many survivors, there is a paradigm shift of like, wait a minute, this is not a just fair world. Scary, unsafe things happen all the time. The information is there. And that can definitely be very shocking and very scary. But if we allow ourselves to go through that paradigm shift, we actually can enact some very, very real change and it can be very powerful. But if we are not open to recognizing our own limitations, whether that's with our own whiteness, our intersecting identities under privilege that really block us, we have a tendency to buy into rape culture myths, buy into the myths that somebody must do something to deserve it. Or if somebody had other previous interactions with this person, whether positive or negative, then that kind of washes out any complaint that they have. We also see this this unspoken sense of scarcity around support due to rape culture. And we see this happen also around things like hyper-individualism and capitalism, where there's a lot of competition. And in order for there to be a lot of competition, there also has to be scarcity. There has to be a lot of scarcity involved in order for competition to truly work. And so we see that also with rape culture, this idea that only a few survivors will get the support. And we've talked about this earlier with other episodes about what the palatable victim looks like or what the like good survivor is. And that's somebody who oftentimes is white, conventionally attractive, somewhat affluent and successful, has a lot of achievement has never committed any crimes themselves or doesn't engage in different behaviors that people judge as problematic and you know was simply minding their own business when a random attack occurred which is very very few of us but the scarcity is is that we have to earn our support rather than that support is just given and that's actually part of rape culture is to make support scarce that 
the justice system is only going to believe and act on certain stories or certain reports, you know, that our justice system, when it does act on it, is going to be traumatic to the survivor and is actually going to just perpetuate harm and violence and reinforce it in our world and make it worse. The scarcity that we can only believe a certain subset of people. And we see that part of the Me Too movement, part of what was really launched with that article about Harvey Weinstein, about all of the the women coming forward about Harvey Weinstein, and then the ripple effect it had with other industries as well, is that actually there are so, so many of us and our stories are so diverse and so varied. There's no such thing as one type of victim or survivor. So what do we do to really challenge this part of ourselves that might be vulnerable to subscribing to different rape culture myths, to getting really caught up in our own fear and fighting over those like crumbs of support, to buying into the just world myth, to doubting other survivors, even when it's going counter to our values. And I think this was the one that actually stood out the most to me is I'm a clinical psychologist. I have colleagues that are psychologists and therapists and how many therapists and psychologists I saw publicly speaking out against Amber Heard and in support of Johnny Depp was particularly harrowing and scary because it meant that there are so many mental health care providers who have no idea what domestic violence, interpersonal violence, intimate partner violence, gender-based violence looks like. They have no idea what a survivor looks like and how they behave. That's at best. At best, they don't know. At worst, they don't know and they're ready to alienate and ostracize people based on their own judgment. And not judgment like evaluation, judgment as in like they pity them or they think that they're bad or they're they're wrong people. And that was what I was hearing a lot was it wasn't just like, oh, I'm very confused. I don't know what's going on and I wouldn't know how to engage with this. That it actually was people full on calling Amber names, believing that she deserved what she gets, whatever that is, despite the overwhelming evidence that was being reported, even in the trial, but also outside of the trial and the availability of that information to people. Psychologists and therapists are all trained on how to do research and how to at least consume research. It was so shocking to me that with all these resources, there were mental health care professionals who had no capacity to work with survivors. And in fact, I, you know, went on my own social medias and was like, you probably should not be working with people if you cannot do this because you are shutting down a lot of people from being able to get the help that they need. And I definitely got a lot of pushback. And it's something that I'm I'm thinking about constructing something in the future of offering some training workshops for therapists and clinicians and mental health care providers about how to better support survivors, how to engage with survivors, and how to practice some of these principles around creating communities that enable survivors to come forward. But what we can do as individuals in whatever industry we are in professionally, in whatever life we're living personally, first is to really start with practicing non-judgmental self-observation. This is a mindfulness skill. And we're talking about mindfulness, not just as a concrete practice of when you sit for a few minutes meditating and focusing your attention 
on something and just noticing all of the things around you, this is also like a principle of mindfulness that you can live your life by holding a non-judgmental stance and observing yourself that you are both a participant in your mind and body and in the world, but you are also an observer of your mind and body and self-participating in the world. And so you can do this by even doing some concrete practices where you sit in a mindful pose and you focus yourself for a moment and just notice and observe the sounds that you hear around you. Notice and observe the body sensations you're having, where your body makes contact with the space, whether you're sitting on a chair, your feet are on the floor, the air is touching your skin, being mindful of your breath, and then moving that observation inward, that same non-judgmental observation towards your thoughts, where you're just watching your thoughts. You're not engaging in the thinking. You're just noticing the thoughts as though you were reading them on a screen on a wall, as well as noticing and observing the emotions and how the emotions get experienced and expressed. What's important is, is that non-judgmental stance is being applied here. What non-judgmental stance means is that we're not evaluating whether or not these thoughts or these experiences are good or bad. We're not saying that they should or shouldn't be something. We are simply accepting them as they are. It's actually a very neutral place to hold this, and it's important to hold it in a neutral place. So non-judgmental stance can be similar to self-compassion, but it's not the same as self-compassion. I actually think it's a step towards self-compassion. We do need to hold non-judgmental stance towards ourselves in order to practice self-compassion. But non-judgmental stance is not the same thing as saying everything's good, everything's positive. I am a pure, positive, good human being with a good heart, good soul. So everything I think, feel, and do is good. Non-judgmental stance is actually just simply observing and describing what are observable facts. I have thoughts. The air is cold. My breath sounds the way it sounds. I hear the sound of an airplane. Non-judgmental stance can also include what I want and what I don't want, what I like, what I don't like. And that would be a nice way of rephrasing it from a, I should or I shouldn't. So for example, if I notice that I have a judgmental thought towards someone of like, man, I don't really like that person. I'm not really sure if I totally believe what they're saying or you know what, like she's been a total bitch to me. And so I don't really care what she says. You know, I'm not going to listen to her, la, la, la. And I notice that judgmental thought and I'm like, ooh, I really don't like that I had that thought. That's a really, that's a really mean thought. That's very cruel. That's not in my values. On one side, it's great that we're making that observation. The other side is to notice that discomfort that comes up and hold that non-judgmental stance. And that can look like I had a thought that does not align with my values. What is so important about this observational stance is that it creates a distance between us and our thoughts. So we're not totally fused with our thoughts. We're able to see and recognize them because our brain has automatic thoughts all the time. Those automatic thoughts are part of our shaping. So if you fall in the category like I do as a 
white woman, a white feminist, a white survivor, my automatic thoughts are always going to be shaped by my own indoctrination into white supremacy. We live in a system that has white supremacy. It's the air we breathe. Regardless of our values, it's going to impact us. And so automatic thoughts are going to be shaped by the world that we live in, by our experiences, by our history. And that's where we see people having some of these issues coming up around proximity to privilege, a scarcity, sense around support for survivors, buying into rape culture myths, or the just world myth. This is actually a fusion with automatic thoughts around what our culture has shaped in us. And so by holding this non-judgmental stance, we get to take this first pause to observe and notice a thought. I just had a thought that doesn't align with my values. I wonder if there's more information here. We start to be able to then open ourselves up to understand more. When we notice that we have this thought, we can notice other things that come up with us as well. So for example, when we hear somebody share their story and we're experiencing a sense of doubt around it. We can say to ourselves, first, I notice that I had this automatic thought. I notice that when I hear this person discuss their story, I have certain body sensations. I have body sensations that typically arise when I feel a sense of tension. I notice myself have the emotion of anxiety or disgust or fear. I'm noticing a lot of discomfort within me. I have the thought that this doesn't sound true to me. I'm noticing the thought that this doesn't sound true to me. And this is where we pause with non-judgment, without judging ourselves, without judging other people reactively of like, my thoughts are always true, so therefore it's okay for me to doubt this person. As we pause and we say like, we all have automatic thoughts that might be wrong. And so we start to ask ourselves questions rather than make assertions. This is the skill. We need to be mindfully non-judgmental towards ourselves. We need to observe ourselves to be able to take distance, mindfulness of thoughts or thought diffusion is what we call it too. And then when we can observe our thoughts, we can connect back to our wiser selves and to our values. So we connect to our values and remind ourselves what our values truly are and what they would say to this thought. I value opening space for survivors to come forward. I value holding space for vast difference in experiences, including those that I don't understand. And when I think about that, that I have this value of holding space for stories that I don't know or I don't understand are different than mine, different than others that I've heard, then that thought of, I don't believe this person is telling the truth starts to fade a little bit. Especially because when I tap into feeling anxious or disgust or fear or these body sensations of tension, it might actually be that I'm noticing that I'm reacting and responding with anxiety and fear to a story of trauma, which makes a lot of sense. It's frightening to hear stories of trauma. It's hard to hear these things. It's painful. It's scary. It reminds us that our world is not a just fair place. And it might activate grief with us, which includes anger. And we might feel those things and want to reject it. And instead, if we can allow ourselves to comfortably sit with those difficult emotions, we might be able to move away from rejecting it by doubting the person and move towards support and connection. The other thing that we can connect with when we notice these thoughts of, I have the thought that this doesn't sound true to me, we can also connect with facts that we know. False re reports are extremely rare. They're one to 5% of reports. 
And when we include the reports that are not made, that actually falls to less than 1%. And that they have found that of those stories that were deemed as false, one, they're oftentimes miscategorized because people will categorize a false report when what they actually mean is that the survivor decided to no longer cooperate with the investigation or that they were unable to conclude without a reasonable doubt or just were unable to proceed with legal proceedings because there wasn't enough evidence to proceed. That doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It just means that there just wasn't enough that they collected or gathered or that as, which is very common, survivors decided they could not proceed with the report because reports are traumatizing. So we also have that. Also in the ones that are actually somebody fully made up a false allegation. Again, this is less than 1% of all times that somebody is sexually assaulted. Less than 1% of reports made is going to be false. It was not actually an issue of wanting attention or money, that it oftentimes was adolescents trying to get out of consequences, which is really surprising. That's not what I would have expected. This does not mean to doubt adolescents. Again, that number is like 1%. One it means 99% of the reports that we hear are true. And so connecting even with those facts, we can also just say like, by and large, like it's highly unlikely. It is extremely unlikely that even though this story does not sound true to me, it's highly unlikely that it's actually false. We can also, in this pause that we're taking, right, this non-judgmental pause of observing our thoughts and beliefs come forward, we can connect with our emotional self-awareness and recognize that these same emotions and feelings are ones that I might have towards anything that I wish wasn't true. Because I wish that rape wasn't happening. I wish that sexual assault wasn't happening. I wish that intimate partner violence, domestic violence, and gender-based violence never happened that they found that actually a lot of people that are doubting stories, particularly from celebrity figures reporting, is that they believe that if you have money and power, you should be able to avoid these things. We buy into capitalism. I should be able to avoid danger and harm because that gives me power. And what we see is people saying, no, actually, it doesn't protect you at all. Having money and power does not protect you at all. And in fact, Having celebrity seems to be putting people at a lot of risk, but that there is no protection from gender-based violence, none. And that's actually a really harsh truth to face. That really flies in the face of that just fair world or even the capitalistic world. And that can be really, really hard and very painful. And so if we tap into our emotional self-awareness, we might notice that I'm actually experiencing feelings of denial, feelings of anger, maybe feelings of bargaining. This all sounds like grief. I'm grieving right now. I'm grieving the loss of the world that should be. I'm grieving the loss of the world that is our birthright to live without violence. So I think in here we can acknowledge the limitations in our own knowing. Again, non-judgmentally, when we're non-judgmental about ourselves and about other people, there is no pain involved with acknowledging our own limitations because we're not judging ourselves as bad people for having limitations. We can acknowledge limitations in our own knowing, maybe our own education and training, our own understanding and experience. We can say like, my experience is very limited to my worldview, my perspective, my point of view, and my point of view does not come anywhere close to encompassing all the possible experiences people have in this world. 
I can admit and accept that I don't always know without blaming myself for not knowing. And we can move towards curiosity and openness rather than shutting down. And with curiosity and openness, we can ask questions. And some of those questions might actually move rather than towards, well, what facts are there? What do I know to be true? You know, what has this person said about the allegations is actually maybe moving more towards what do I need to do in order to create the world that I want to create? If the world that I want to create has no gender-based violence, how does that inform my next step with regards to hearing this? That might be that I say, tell me more. I want to hear more from this person. I am here. I'm offering support. You are safe with me. I'm going to practice my own skills for regulating my emotions. I'm going to take care of myself so that I can show up for other people. I'm going to challenge those core beliefs that come up in my mind. I'm going to challenge those core beliefs when they come up with other people. I'm moving in the direction of creating a world free of violence. And so that also means that I have to create a community that allows survivors to come forward safely. And that starts with me. So I need to respond to somebody's story with a safe response. And that is, I hear you. I hear you. I'm here for you. What do you need from me? So when we are non-judgmental and open to ourselves, we can offer that same thing to others and model it for others. We can show people how to hold a non-judgmental stance. We can offer that to the survivors coming forward with their stories. We can offer that to the allies that are wanting to hear stories and hold space. We can offer that to the people who are struggling with that paradigm shift away from the just and fair world. We can offer that non-judgmental stance because that enables everybody to be more open and to learn. We can build safety in our communities. More people will start to come forward. More people will be willing to listen. And more people will be willing to learn how their implicit bias may interfere with our, our shared goals here. How am I buying in possibly to these myths? And what do those myths offer me? If I believe that the world is a just fair place, it offers me a false sense of security, but ultimately means that I don't need to be afraid. And if I really buy into that just fair belief and that myth about the world, then I have kind of a prescription of how to behave in order to get what I want and how to avoid danger. And that makes it feel very predictable and protected. And that feels so much better than thinking that there's an overwhelming amount of violence that is occurring on a daily basis that is going unaddressed and is continuing to grow and expand. That is a scary thought. I'd rather have a safe thought. But we can examine these things with a non-judgmental stance because we've created emotional safety. We've created a space where we're not judging ourselves and we're not judging other people. We're not going to be shamed. We're not shaming ourselves. We're not going to be hurt. We're not going to be seen as incompetent. We're going to be offered opportunities to learn and to change and to grow. And that part of holding this non-judgmental space is we also start to challenge that part of ourselves that has really bought into the carceral state solution. This idea that the carceral state offers safety and protection and justice and actually ends crime and in, in danger, which it does not. It actually increases crime and danger. We know this. I can go on for hours about this. And there are definitely a lot of people who know a whole lot more than me that are much more affected by the carceral system that we can amplify their voices and hear them and their stories. 
but that ultimately what we see the film she said this open letter that came out by all of this movement of survivors really moving forward these organizations even sometimes just informal social media groups where survivors have come together to support each other is that we see that there's so much power that's happening to make major cultural shifts when all of those articles came out about harvey weinstein the me too movement exploded into something different than what toronto burke had built but that was also just as powerful and the me too movement became something that also mobilized people into change that it wasn't just the film industry now all industries were starting to have people come forward and to interrogate the sexual harassment that they've been complicit in and starting to make changes and when we are individuals the threat of violence keeps us afraid and small and isolated and powerless but then when we are connected as a community that threat diminishes and we're able to really really connect with our power and start to make some of these major cultural shifts which is what we saw back when this article came out back when people started to connect with me too in this broader more expansive way that we're continuing to see come forward that I think what really comforted me with this open letter coming out wasn't just that like we're finally starting to have this conversation but was also saying we are going to harness the power of community to push back on the tools that oppression is using to keep us down this online harassment online threats spreading of misinformation using of technology with like bot accounts to spread all of those things to threaten people threaten their livelihoods threaten their safety if they were to support this one person coming forward about their story and we came back together as a community and said no actually with our numbers and our voices we're going to drown this out and we're not going to actually continue with this so coming back again the skill primarily today that we're talking about about how to create survivor-centered communities is really how we can hold a non-judgmental mindful stance towards ourselves observing our automatic thoughts and beliefs as they come up and holding them up against our values and what our values tell us to do to proceed as well as holding that same non-judgmental observation of others who are grappling with the same systems of oppression that we're in. Part of that is recognizing the systems of privilege that we are participating in, as well as the systems of oppression that are shaping the way that we think and believe about the world. And remember that when we come together under non-judgmental stance and perspective and connect with our values then we truly can come to this place of i am going to act in alignment with offering survivors what they need so that we can truly create that world that we envision for ourselves that world free from gender-based violence that world where everybody is able to attain achieve and live a life that they want to live connected with each other in community and finding meaningful purpose free from harm that we approach survivors with i hear you what do you need from me here's what i can offer and challenge the part of ourselves that tries to separate and isolate all survivors from each other and from ourselves
So if anything in this episode resonated with you or was interesting or that you start to put into practice in your life, definitely share that with our community. You can tag me in those shares too so that I can amplify it as well. And I look forward to seeing what comes from this. Thank you so much. I am a clinical psychologist and love to share these skills and tips to build resilience and recovery. However, this podcast is not a replacement for psychotherapy or mental health care. We have links in our show notes where you can connect with a provider or you can get a referral from your primary doctor if you wish to receive those services. If you are struggling today or wish to speak to someone, know that Rain is always available 24 hours a day, seven days a week to offer support, guidance, and referrals for help. You can speak to someone right now at Rain at the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673. The Initiated Survivor is a podcast written and hosted by me, Kelsey Harper. It is produced and edited and all-around awesome podcast magic is casted by Sam Valentine. The beautiful music you heard is written and performed by Michael Carpenter Jr. If you wish, please leave us a sweet review so other survivors can find this podcast and get connected as well.